Hi, I'm Koi, your host for this episode of Crime Nerds. Today's episode is about the mass murder of a young family and their friends. A lot of people believe that they know who the suspect is, but as you'll see in this episode, things might not always be as they appear. This is the story of the Colthurst family. Craig is a small coastal town in Alaska. Today the population is about 1,200 people. In 1982, it was about half of that, except during fishing season. When it was fishing season, the population would reach up to 9,000 people. Despite being such a small town, the commercial fishing industry is the largest source of employment. It's that way today, and it was that way back in 1982. And it would be the fishing industry that would lead Mark Colthurst and his family to the small town. In September of 1982, the fishing season was coming to an end. Most boats in the area weren't big fancy boats, they were just regular sized boats that were big enough to hold a small crew and supplies for the season. But there was one boat in the marina that stood out, and it was called the Investor. The Investor was different than other boats. It was fancy, and it was very flashy. It was 58 foot long, and it had state-of-the-art technology for the time, and it costed about $850,000. On board the investor was Mark Colhurst, his wife Irene, who was pregnant with their third child, their daughter Kimberly, who was five years old, and their son John, who was four. And Mark and Irene, they were only in their late 20s at the time. The family was from Blaine, Washington, which was about a thousand miles down the coast, and most Commercial fishing boat captains, they don't bring their families along with the trip, but to Mark and Irene, this meant spending more time together as a family, which was really important to them. And the fishing season went well for Mark and Irene. They brought in around 77,000 pounds of salmon, which was worth about $33,000. Now, this wasn't by accident. Mark worked really hard to be able to afford this expensive boat and to take his family with him and to be able to make over $30,000 in a single fishing season. Mark started fishing commercially when he was only about 16 years old. He worked his way from having a small boat to a little bit bigger one, and he would just continuously keep working his way up until he had the investor. There were also four other people that were on the investor as crewmen for Mark and Irene, which were Dean Moon, Chris Heyman, Jerome Keon, and Michael Stewart. All four of them, they were either 18 or 19 years old. They were set to make a good amount of cash from the fishing trip. September 5th, 1982 marked the end of the fishing season and Mark's 28th birthday. So Mark, his family, and his crew set out to celebrate their good season and have a birthday dinner. They went out for dinner and then they returned to the investor where they went to sleep. Docked on the other side of the dock from the investor was a boat called the Libyate. And on board that boat, the captain, a man named Larry Dimmert, was asleep. 
He was woken up in the middle of the night by the sound of a popping noise. Larry looked out the window by his bed. It was dark outside, and fog covered the docks. But he saw a dark figure walking down the docks. At the time, Larry was still pretty much half asleep, and he wasn't sure what the noise was that he heard. And he didn't think much of it at the time. So he laid back down and went to sleep again. The next morning, when the sun came up, the fog didn't go away for a while. If anything, it just became thicker. People that were docked next to each other, they couldn't even see the boat next to them. But as the fog began to lift, everyone noticed something that was odd. It was the investor, and it had moved. It wasn't at the dock. It was just drifting out in the open water away from the docks. And over the next 24 hours, while the boat just drifted around the area, people began to realize something else that was off with this. No one saw any movement coming from the boat. No one was walking on the deck or anywhere on the boat. There's just nothing at all. And then, there was a huge explosion and the boat erupted into flames. People began jumping into their boats and rushing to the investor trying to put the fire out. But the flames were just too intense for the other fishermen and they couldn't get close enough to try and put the fire out. The fire burned on for several hours before it was finally extinguished. What was left of the investor was towed to the shore where police began going through it. And everyone stood by, hoping that maybe the Colthurst family and their crew wouldn't be on board. But the hope didn't last long, because the police began finding bodies in the rubble. The police found four bodies, and one of them was a child. Everyone was devastated, thinking that this was some horrible accident. And then, police realized that it wasn't just an accidental boat fire that killed them, because all of the victims that they found had bullet holes in them. Over the last few years, I've been writing a fictional book called One Moment, and it's now available on Amazon. It's based in St. Augustine, Florida, and it tells the story of Micah and Sarah. After spending six years in the army, Micah returned to his hometown. Returning home was never part of his plan, but after the physical, emotional, and mental stress from war, home was the best place for him. Sarah is beginning to put her life back together after escaping an abusive marriage. At 24 years old, she's a 911 dispatcher living in St. Augustine. While she is starting to heal, she crosses paths with Micah. Immediately, there is an undeniable connection between the two of them, and they know that they were put in each other's lives for a reason. When Sarah's jealous and abusive ex-husband finds out about the new relationship, he has to get involved himself. While this puts a strain on Sarah and Micah's relationship, dark secrets begin to come out, and they learn that maybe you never truly know someone sometimes the best and the worst things in life can all be traced back to one moment. One Moment's available now on Amazon. It's $9.99 for a paperback copy and $2.99 for an ebook. The Amazon link is in the show notes. And if you read it, I really hope you enjoy it. And please let me know what you think of it. As investigators are going over the boat, they find signs of white gas, which isn't normal gasoline. 
The makeup of white gas is different and it causes a much more intense fire. So clearly, someone wanted this boat to burn. Investigators knew that there were eight people that were supposed to be living on the boat of the investor, and so far they only had four bodies. So they began going through all the debris, which a lot of stuff had just been burned to ashes. And as they were sifting through the ashes, they began coming across small bone fragments of other bodies. The bodies and the bone fragments, they were sent to a medical examiner. During the autopsy, the medical examiner determined that the bullet wounds came from a 22 caliber firearm. The medical examiner also began identifying the bodies, which were identified as Mark, Irene, their daughter Kimberly, and Michael Stewart. Mark and Irene's son, John, and the other three crew members, Jerome, Chris, and Dean, they were still unaccounted for. And this is where investigators start running into difficulties at. Remember, I said the normal population for Craig was about 600 people, and it goes up to about 9,000 during fishing season. Now fishing season is over, and those extra visitors, they were leaving. And the odds were extremely high that the murder suspect or suspects would be leaving also. Police began their investigation with trying to figure out who would have a motive to kill Mark and his family. Everyone in the area knew about what a great season he had fishing, and there were rumors that he had the $33,000 he made in cash aboard his boat, which would probably be a motive for a lot of people. According to People Magazine, a witness came forward to police saying that the night Mark went out for his birthday dinner, he actually borrowed $100 from that witness in order to cover his tab. So it didn't make sense for Mark to have that amount of money in cash, but then still have to borrow money for dinner. But the answer to that question came pretty soon because police learned that Mark hadn't actually been paid for the fish yet. So he didn't have the $33,000 in cash. Then two more witnesses came forward, Bruce Anderson and Jan Kittleson. The morning that the investor caught on fire, Bruce and Jan were out on their own boat and not far from the investor. When the boat caught on fire, they began driving towards it and they passed a small skiff that was being driven by a white male in his late teens or early 20s. They said that he had brown hair, he was wearing a jacket, and he had a hat pulled down. They shouted out to the man asking if anyone was on board the investor and as he was passing, he just said, yeah, there is. The driver kept going the opposite way, but they assumed that he was going to get some help. Police began talking to other people who also remembered seeing this gift pull up to the docks that morning, with a driver matching the same description wearing the ball cap and jacket. But no one knew who he was. Then police found the actual skiff that the man drove up to the dock. But as luck would have it, right before they found it, there was a lot of rain in the area and they weren't able to find anything on the boat that would lead to this man's identity, and they weren't able to fingerprint the boat because of the rain. And a few days passed, and a local rescue worker was in a bar, and he notices a young man that he didn't know. But the man fit the description of the skiff driver that police were looking for. The rescue worker called the police, who showed up before the man could leave. The police also brought Bruce and Jan with them, but the police didn't want to spook this man, so what they did was they waited outside, and they told Bruce and Jan to go inside the bar, walk around or have a seat, and just let them know if they saw the man from the skiff anywhere. Bruce and Jan, they went inside. They looked around, walked around, but then they came out and they said that they didn't see the man. Even without a positive ID on this guy, 
police still thought it was worth talking to him. So they go in and they ask him to come outside and talk. The man was identified as John Peel. John was 28 years old and he was from Washington State. He was in town working as a deckhand on the Libby 8, the same boat that was Dr. Cross from The Investor. John also said that he was sleeping the night of the murder on the Libby 8, but the connection doesn't end there. John knew Mark personally. He told police that a few years prior, he dated Mark's sister, Lisa, and it didn't end there either. It turned out not only did John date Lisa, but he used to work for Mark on one of his other fishing boats. Even though Bruce and Jan couldn't ID this guy as the person that they saw in the skiff, John quickly became a person of interest for police. Police then talked to the captain of the Libby 8, Larry, to try and get information on John. Larry told them that he had known John for most of his life and he hired him to work for him for the summer. But Larry said he wasn't sure if John was on board the Libby 8 or not the night of the murders. Initially, the medical examiner was only able to identify four of the victims. Everyone assumed that all eight people were on board and it would only be a matter of time before everyone else was identified. Eventually, the medical examiner was able to use dental records to identify bone fragments that were found as Chris Heyman and Jerome Keown. So now the only two that weren't accounted for were Mark and Irene's son, John, and the last crew member, Dean Moon. Six months passed with no new leads. Then a tip comes in that flips everything around. And the tip was that Dean Moon was spotted on a fishing dock in San Francisco, California. Now police look at the theory that maybe Dean was involved with the murders. And I think this is part of the case where things went a little wrong. In a lot of high-profile cases, people call in tips when they think that they see someone that the police are looking for. A lot of times, it might not be a good tip, but it's still good to have people to be on the lookout because you never know when it will be a good tip and someone will be located. But before police could even verify that if Dean was in San Francisco or not, they went to his family. For the last six months, his family believed that Dean was on The Investor. He was even honored at the memorial that was held for all eight crew members. Now police were asking his family if they've heard from him. They began asking about the possibility that he was involved in the murder. To say that his family was shocked and confused is an understatement. They knew that Dean would not do anything like this. And as it happened to be, the investigators weren't able to find any signs of Dean in San Francisco. Then, soon after that, dental records confirmed that a partial jawbone and other bone fragments found on the investor were Dean's. By this time, Mark's son, John, his body was the only one that hadn't been located and no fragments or dental records were confirmed to be his. And the investigator believed that this was because his body was completely consumed by the fire. A year went by with no arrests being made, no new suspects or clues, and the case just went cold. Around the one-year anniversary, police decided to re-interview everyone that they spoke with before, and one of those people was the captain of the Libby 8, Larry. But this interview is much different than the last one, because now Larry has some new information that he wants to share with the investigators. Alright, so I'm comfortable saying that coffee is an addiction to me. Most days, I at least have two cups. Recently, I've been trying several different brands and flavors, 
and I came across Barney's Coffee and Tea Company. Barney's is a small coffee company based out of Orlando, Florida, and they produce some really amazing coffee flavors, including my personal favorite, which is creamy buttery caramel. If you'd like to try some coffee from Barney's, you can order it through Amazon, and the Amazon link is in the show notes. And just a heads up, it is an affiliate link, which means that I may receive a small commission from Amazon if you purchase anything, but it is no extra cost to you, and the money would go to helping out this show, and on top of that, you get some really amazing tasting coffee. Now, back to the show. Larry said that around 10 o'clock on the night of the murders, he was coming back from his girlfriend's house to the Libby 8. He saw someone walk from the Libby 8 to the investor, and that someone was John Peel. Before, he also told investigators that he wasn't sure if John spent the night on the Libby 8, but now he's saying that he knows John didn't stay there. He said that when he went to bed, he was the only one on the boat, and when he woke up, he was still the only one on the boat. But hold on for just a second, because there's more. Larry also kept a couple of guns on board the Libby 8, a 22 caliber revolver and a 22 caliber single shot rifle. And a few days after the murder, he found the guns on the boat, but they weren't where he normally stored them. Larry agreed to turn the guns over to law enforcement to be tested, but the ballistics tests came back inconclusive. And a big question is, what was going on? Why now was he coming forward with this information after a year? And according to an interview that Larry did with People Magazine, he said that back then, he didn't want to be involved with cops at all. He smoked a lot of weed, and he didn't want people seeing him talking to cops at the docks. Police talked to another crew member aboard the Libby 8, who said that before the murders, earlier in the day, John brought Dean and Jerome on board the Libby 8, where he sold them some weed. With this information, police talked to John again. But this time, it's not outside of a bar. They bring him into an interview room, and he did admit that he sold them some weed, but that's not the big picture here. John slowly began revealing more information about the whole situation and his relationship with Mark. As you know now, Mark ran a successful fishing business, and that wasn't by accident. While he was described as a very generous person, he took his business very seriously. John worked for Mark for a few years, and one thing that Mark was big on was that while people were working, there wouldn't be any use of drugs or alcohol. But John didn't really abide by that rule, and he got caught several times smoking weed or showing up drunk. And eventually, after being caught enough times, Mark fired John from the boat. While things seemed to come together for police now, they had to let John go, because they still they just didn't have enough to arrest him on. Investigators in this case ended up having Bruce and Jan sit down with a sketch artist to draw a sketch of the person that they saw driving the skiff. The picture was released to the local media, asking anyone with any information to come forward. The picture was released to the local media, asking anyone with any information to come forward. One witness came forward and said that he was on the docks and he saw a man pull up on a skiff that morning. Investigators put together a photo lineup for this witness, and he picked out a photo of John Peel as the person that he saw driving this gift up to the dock. On September 10th, 1984, almost exactly two years after the murder, an arrest warrant was issued for John Peel, and he was taken into custody for eight counts of murder. 
This next part is something that I found pretty interesting and I've never seen it before. In 1985, John Peel's trial began. He showed up for court wearing his jumpsuit from jail and a ski mask. And a ski mask is something that I've never seen or heard of someone doing. And I didn't think that you could wear a hat in court, let alone a mask. But it actually did end up making some sense. John's lawyer argued that this case was getting a lot of publicity and that most of this case was based on eyewitness testimony. They worried that if a picture of John's face was shown in the papers or on TV, then it would influence the witnesses in the case. As the trial began, the prosecutors argued that the motive for the murder was that John was out to get revenge on Mark for firing him. A key witness for the state, the Libby 8's Captain Larry. This time, Larry has more new information. Remember earlier in the beginning when I said that Larry was woken up from hearing the popping noise? Well, now Larry's saying that when he looked outside the window, he saw the dark figure on the dock carrying a rifle. And this really didn't help the prosecutors because now the defense attorney just went after Larry's credibility, which the defense attorney did a good job at. Not only that, but going after the credibility of each witness, mostly questioning how they could remember such details over such a long period of time. And in the end, the jury couldn't reach a conclusion either. It was a hung jury. In 1988, the prosecutors tried the murder case against John Peel again, this time with two new witnesses. These witnesses were friends of John's, and they claimed that on a fishing trip together, John confessed to them about the murders. But once again, the defense attorney went after the credibility of the witnesses, because one of them had an open case against them. And in exchange for his testimony in John's case, the prosecutors agreed to drop his charge to a lesser charge. After three months of trial, the jury took four days to deliberate. The results? Not guilty. There just wasn't enough evidence to convict John of eight murders. In 2016, Mark's sisters, Lisa and Lori, they did something different. Something almost unimaginable. There still hadn't been any justice for Mark and Irene's family or their crew members. But Lisa and Lori, they were searching for closure, so they met with John Peel in person. They told John that they felt that he was keeping a secret. He looked them in the eyes and told them that he did not kill anyone. With as much time that has passed, with no new evidence, no new leads, there's still no closure for the families and friends of the victims. The biggest hope that they can have is that one day, someone will come forward with a confession. And that brings us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. Thank you for listening, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Crime Nerds Podcast.